Welcome to Gogorin, the Eurozine podcast with authors and editors from our network of cultural journals from throughout Europe and beyond. Eurozine is an online magazine and a hub of 90 partners, journals, magazines and associates from Belgium to Belarus, from Norway to Bulgaria, publishing literature and analyzing politics, reflecting on culture and bringing diverse voices to a joint conversation. I am editor-in-chief Reka King-Pop, and today I'm talking to philosopher Miriam Rush from the Institute of Network Cultures and also from Eurozine's Board of Editors about her essay just published in Eurozine, Friction and the Aesthetics of the Smooth, Ethics in Times of Dataism. This article is an excerpt from Miriam's recently published book of the same title in Dutch, which was published in May 2020 under lockdown. Miriam works in Amsterdam and is based in Rotterdam. I work in Vienna and sheltering in place in Budapest, and we are recording this conversation online during quarantine. Miriam, thanks for being with us today. Well, in your essay you argue for de-automation, yet you had to move your book launch online because of coronavirus. So tell me, how was it? I was very happy that it was uh, published according to plan, which of course was not something that was expected. When we all started working from home and countries started to shut down, I was I was a bit afraid what would happen with the book that I'd been working on for so long, for so with with you know so many deadlines and uh, pushing myself towards them. But in the end we managed to uh, to have it come out in time as planned. And of course, it's because of like local circumstances. So in the Netherlands, the bookstores uh, have remained open. Printers have been doing their business all the time. So it was possible to uh, produce the book and also to distribute it and, and sell it in the end, which of course is uh, very important if you want to bring out a book. And um, I think one of the reasons to really also make sure that it would come out now is because also during this whole COVID-19 crisis, we are seeing so many things happening with data, data collection, things that data are supposed to do for us or predict or solve or the whole question of this data technology and the dataist visions that surround it is quite relevant also right now. So so I'm happy that the book is out and we get to discuss it also in, in this very timely manner. Sure, and an excerpt in English uh, is uh, on your zine, you can find under under the same title. And of course the book is available in Dutch for anyone who reads Dutch or just wants a pretty and important book to have at home. <laughs> so if, if you want to show off, even though you don't read Dutch, it's available. But let's make the case for talking about what ethics means in this time of, um, well, another frenzy with quantified data. This has been around and there have been huge waves in the appreciation of, of um, numeric information or mathematic, um, mathematicized information. Um, on and off and basically since the invention of what we now call facts which is um, <laughs> which is not the facts machine but you know but facts as in uh, figures that we treat as pure truth which yes. some researchers <laughs> link to the early modern times of inventing double bookkeeping and then statistics developing from then on This is something that that has huge waves and is 
returning then and again talking about factuality and pure truth and empirical truth but what we're talking about right now in this situation is that whole political regimes are fighting about whether quantified data that is often collected among very questionable circumstances is capable of saving humanity altogether because what we are trying to do uh, right now is that we're, we're trying to socially distance and observe certain um, rules to prevent submission of a virus that we don't yet have a cure for. But what, um, for instance, uh, cell phone manufacturers and software uh, producers or, or software uh, engineers are suggesting that we should be relying on quantified location data in order to identify uh, potential new outbreaks or potential transmission of a virus. And in this whole discourse, to me, it seems that often, oftentimes this data is being talked about as unquestionable and uh, a tool above all. What does the philosopher mm -hmm. looking at this first think of when you think about location data or demanding location data about people and saying that this is going to be the relief mm -hmm. for a global global crisis well there are many things uh, to think of i think in your uh, kind of uh, elaboration of of what might be the situation or or the problem there and i think to uh, get back to what you were saying about this idea of pure truth. I guess many people would, would by now say, you know, there's not, not such a thing as, as pure truth. Or when it comes to data, it's very normal to be talking about something like raw data. And um, that is kind of where the, the troubles start, uh, if you ask me. So this idea that there are raw data lying out there in the world, waiting for us to pick them up, to collect them and to make sense of them. Like a raw um, material or some kind of mineable good, right? Something that yeah. you dig out from the dirt. Or like breadcrumbs that were left there by, uh, you know, all of us uh, walking through the streets. Um, to collect data, to find these data, you have to have a system in place and an infrastructure in place that actually produces data like these. So they are not there waiting, you know, to uh, to start working or whatever. They are produced through a certain uh, system and infrastructure with a certain goal, with an intent, uh, with a question, with a problem that needs uh, solving. So that's kind of like the, the first step of um, looking at these data that, you know, uh, uh, it's it's almost like a saying there's no such thing as raw data but it it's a saying that's not uh, completely you know uh, uh, something that at least in in the circles of data collection whether it's governmental or market driven the promise is that there is something like raw data which is philosophically well doubtful and so also, also sociologically speaking, it's it's very mm -hmm. doubtful if we're talking about a discipline that has been relying on uh, on mathematicized data for a long time, or at least certain arms of social sciences have been focusing very much on this 
that the process of operationalizing something into data, into something that you can actually then put on charts, is mm -hmm. a very human-driven process, even if it's algorithms that, that actually execute it by now. Um, yeah, the whole so human-driven. Yeah, it's, it's a human process. And like everything, be it human or, or automated, it is fallible. We talk about automation and let's say what these data-driven processes as something or, or uh, computing as something that is not as fallible as humans. But I don't know if, if people have spent enough time by now on their computers during this lockdown to understand that their computers are not at all infallible. They are also producing all sorts of mistakes and especially when humans are using them, they what comes out on the other end bears the footprint or the marks of that human, doesn't it? Yes, so this is something that we can uh, see, for example, in uh, a phenomenon that is called algorithmic, algorithmic bias. So uh, the notion that an algorithm is like a very structured uh, uh, method that, you know, uh, crunches through the data and uh, gets to, um, you know, an endpoint and, and, and uh, an answer to a question. But the algorithm is made by humans, um, has a certain, you know, makeup, and therefore it has a perspective or a bias. And, um, you know, there are examples that are well known right now, you know, so the bias of the Google algorithm that uh, delivers pictures of, of uh, white men when you look for CEO, for example, or, you know, uh, delivering certain uh, job uh, positions to certain demographic groups. Um, or when you, you write a woman's name into the Google search uh, bar, it's a, or a celebrity, a female celebrity's name in the Google search bar, it's going to offer you the automatic search connection to their husband for instance that's one of my favorites <laughs> i i really love that you know there would be like some major controversy or a name of the film that they starred in and also husband <laughs> yeah suggest you to search for it doesn't happen the same way with male actors <laughs> just to bring up another example but there's more examples and a, a whole uh, elaboration of these problems on Eurozine under the title The End of Anonymity by um, Daniel Leisegang, um, who is an editor at Blätter für Deutsche und Internationale Politik. You find it in our focal point, the same focal point that Medium's article is in, Big Tech, The Law of Power. So if you want to know more about, for instance, facial recognition, this is the place to look for. But sorry, yeah. back to you, Miriam. Well, I, I think also the example of facial recognition is interesting because it's, uh, it has to do with um, vision and looking. And um, maybe, you know, we don't even have to say that the computer can be fallible. Uh, it's rather that the computer or the algorithm also has a perspective. So it's not absolute. And this promise of, of the, the truth and the raw data and, uh, you know, the truth and nothing but the truth. It's what, uh, what I call in my book, uh, following Simone de Beauvoir, uh, it is this false promise of, of an 
endless objectivity. So the idea that you can know everything and that there is uh, through data, that's what I make of it, uh, a universal code that will just allow you to translate the whole world into it and then you will know everything and you will be able to calculate everything, predict everything, manipulate accordingly. So um, just help me situate this. My, you know, in the streets would be called my bullshit detector immediately <laughs> leads me to first bench positivism on this. Is this just the current wave of good old positivism that says that everything is quantifiable and there's a, a finite amount of knowledge that can be mined out? Is it something completely different or is it branching from this tree? I think it's definitely branching from positivism and that's also something that you see with a guy like Yuval Noah Harari, uh, whom I talk about in my uh, essay on Eurozine. So this idea that science is uh, something that is progressing towards more knowledge and towards a reductionist uh, view of the world. So the idea that we can bring back, you know, the complexity of the world to just a couple of slogans, basically. And his slogan then is, all organisms are algorithms. So everything in the world can be brought back to the algorithm. And you would, yeah, I agree, you would kind of expect that people by now would have learned to, you know, uh, recognize this for what it is the positivism that, that we've, well, we, we maybe thought that we had left behind, but we didn't. But then there is, you know, when it comes to, to this data and technology, of course, a lot has happened, especially in, in the 21st century, where also the technology has made it possible to put this kind of reductionist view in itself also in practice, you know, and make money with it and develop policies on it. Well, and really, I, I hate yeah. I'm always the party spoiled to to remind that also this kind of view of quantifying humans into a certain type of data, for mm -hmm. instance, using census information and the thought that you can count the amount of calories that a human being requires and compare that with the labor force that they provide can give you grounds to decide whether you want to mass exterminate them. I know this is like the very end of this chart but quantifying mm -hmm. humans in this sense has brought some of our greatest tragedies tragedies on us, haven't they? Or is it just, you know, me always thinking about the Holocaust because somehow <laughs> it always pops up? Well, I, I think it's, it's not weird that your thoughts move in that direction. I mean, uh, if everything is quantifiable, you can start also, you know, calculating with human lives. And that is happening, that has happened, and it's also happening right now. And I think what is, well, maybe not new, but very specific of these kind of dataist profits of dataism, as I call them, is that they also present a, a very specific vision for the future. So if you collect all the data and you have like uh, this, this endless objectivity, even if we know that it's false, and you can predict where we are heading, then you can also present you know, like a utopia of the future where we will be, you know, uh, released, in fact, of, of ethical concerns because everything will happen as it, as it should happen. And I think this is where it, it starts getting dangerous, maybe even I'd like to 
to call it that because it's it's like an inevitable picture of where we are going and on the one hand it's inevitable in the sense that you know it's said like you you can't resist it's just gonna happen this technology is just gonna you know also all over us and maybe you don't agree with it but it's the way of the world it's inevitable and so just move along and that's the best thing to do reminding me of quite a candid type of worldview candid as in the name of the novel and the weird extrapolation of a of a first wave or, or an early wave of positivism into how we're always talking about the inevitability and the best possible outcome mm -hmm. yeah and i think that's something that we also see happening now like uh, when there's talk about data collection with you know, concerning the virus, you know, it's, of course, we need to produce knowledge about what is happening, but there's a lot of this inevitability that is, uh, that is being brought up in dis discussions about how to do it. And um, it also has this ring of solutionism, as uh, Morozov calls it. So technology will be the solution to our problems. So we will have to use technology. It's like, We can't solve our problems anymore without it. Yeah, And, but there seems yeah. to be a very big conflict between what the humanities or much of the humanities have been trying to emphasize in the past, let's just say, a few decades, that there is no teleology in history. We are not inevitably going in a certain direction there is no divine plan that we have to fulfill or if we, de we deter from that we get our sentences or we get our punishment but we are trying to think in completely different terms um, or at least the mainstream of whatever the mainstream is because humanities don't always seem to be mainstream these days for all <laughs> well, sorts never. of reasons well <laughs> I would argue that philosophers had a, a good few hundred years a run. Um, not too many, though. But, you know, when when you would choose whether you want to be, I don't know, a craftsman or a philosopher, a philosopher would be rock. <laughs> you know, you would, would, be, would be the one that rocks. But um, but it also was a risky profession at the time so it you also did risk getting executed for your views so. <laughs> yes and as a woman it it has never been uh the first thing that that came to mind i guess um, so, and i think yeah. we will have to circle back on that because in your essay you talk about trying to stay motionless to not produce data and as a woman mm -hmm. you have been expected to do that for quite a while Yes, but, and to shut up. Yeah. yeah, but just to get back to this paradox, so basically our current understanding of of history, at least, is that so <laughs> there is no inevitable way that we definitely have to go, that history mm -hmm. isn't circular either. So it's, it's not teleological, teleological, it's not circular, mm -hmm. and there is a huge terror in accepting that that there is no endpoint. And there comes dataism, which says that there is a certain direction and we can define it. We can just let the computers count it. And then it's going to be very, very smooth and obvious. Yeah. And this smoothness is something, this vision of smooth is something that you take issue with, right? Uh, just to quote, it's not an exact quote, but a little bit of 
distilling from your essay, you say that frictionless or seamless design is an important dogma of dataism, but without unpredictable, sorry, but without unpredictable behavior, there's no data to retrieve. So if every moment follows familiar patterns, the world comes to a halt. A wholly predictable future is not a future, but a continuous present. Now, I really would like you to develop this idea, but also tell me why a continuous present is so threatening, because it might just not be self-explanatory. Why is it a problem mm -hmm. if we are not in a time continuum, but like walking in, in one, one place? There's, again, a lot uh, to unpack there, I guess. And maybe to ask uh, or to, to start with the last point, uh, which I've been thinking about a lot uh, during my writing. Why is why would it be a problem? I mean, don't we all want this beautiful, shiny, light, utopic future that is being promised uh, and it's to being us? talked about being in the here and now and nowhere else and don't think yeah. about the future, right? And if the algorithm can tell me what to do and I will never have to suffer again, you know, why would I not want that? That is a, a very valid question. But then, you know, it, it, you don't have to search very far to, to understand that this future that is being presented is always a very specific future. So um i also have I have a part in my book where i i do some kind of close reading of uh, ted talks by silicon valley ceos and um you have very to... weird hobbies <laughs> let's be honest <laughs> i i admire your patience go <laughs> yeah but I'm, I'm i'm just so kind of like bewildered by by what these people are saying and and what they think that all of us want so they are taking their own kind of dreams and uh, wishes and they are immediately thinking that the whole of the world wants what they want. So the very pragmatic answer to, you know, why wouldn't we want this uh, smooth and continuous present is because it's always the fulfillment of someone, someone's dream and not your own. And, you know, Maybe it's the fulfillment of the majority of people. I don't know about that because they never research it, but at least it's not uh, what I would want personally. And um, so that that's just, again, you know, harking back to this idea of uh, the fallibility or the bias or the perspective that's also in an algorithm or in a data set to begin with. That's also, of course, uh, what is happening with these uh, visionaries who are presenting, you know, the, the dataistic future. It's also a perspective of the future and it's uh, a certain dream that is presented and it's uh, presented as a universal, absolute dream that will hold for everyone. But um, um, I think it's quite obvious that that's not the case. So it's but, but there's there is a set of features in these visions that one can identify through well e even from afar. So basically, the main features of these are uh, a frictionlessness or seamlessness, as you point mm -hmm. out. So there's as little also conflict 
as possible. There, there shouldn't be conflict or confrontation, possibly, right? There should yeah. be very little effort that you have to show for your personal needs, which is like yes. a central, actually very infantile fantasy that I share oftentimes. <laughs> now, taking care of three kids in quarantine and working beside that, I also really want someone to just change my nappy sometime. But that is also that that has very long-winded implications for a person's own control of their own life and also what the hell you are alive for if you are being so yeah. well taken care of so where is your where is your person yes and you know i sometimes fear or wonder or realize maybe that it's a, quite an old fashioned position to take you know what what does it mean to be a human being or what does it mean to be alive well, it means also that you have to suffer sometimes or you have to, you know, uh, make an effort. And it, it, maybe it's a bit old fashioned to think like that. But for me, you know, it's also that I, I don't want to, you know, rob people of, of happiness or, or a smooth life. I, I wouldn't dare do that. But I think what um, what it comes down to also in my book is, you know, I, I've been searching for the meaning of ethics in this kind of world that is driven and obsessed by, by data. And what is happening, and that is kind of what I found out through this uh, frictionless and smooth desire that is uh, behind uh, these technological developments is when you take away all friction, you take away ethics. And that kind of made clear to me why ethics is having such a such a hard time, you know, with these tech CEOs and the Silicon Valley bros, you know, they talk about ethics sometimes, but it's obvious that it never really, you know, leads to something. So it's like, ah, oh, yeah, we need an ethical board and then they can have a meeting, but, you know, there's not really going to change anything. And I think it is because of this frictionless or seamless ideal which just can't handle ethics because ethics it's you know what i what i learned from simone de beauvoir in her in her uh, ethics of ambiguity ethics starts with the experience of friction so you know if if we know what to do all the time or if the algorithm decides for us all the time there's there's no need for ethics anymore yeah because that vision is basically an endless flowchart of some mm -hmm. situation occurring from another in a very finite environment where you can actually experience every aspect and understand and everything is intelligible straight up because there's mm -hmm. basically much fewer variables that you have to think about. Now, these are entirely artificial environments. What we know about real situations and those real situations can also happen in a server room is that they are very robust and there's such a robust ecosystem of variables that you cannot really model those. For instance, any ecosystem of nature, be it in like a small urban space, you cannot really model through the few variables that are intelligible for you know, even a, a textbook or an algorithm. There's always going to be factors that you did not foresee. Now, in this vision, there is a flowchart of issues that can arise or factors that you have to deal with. And there's always 
a seamless and confrontationless solution for that, right? It's like these mm -hmm. little machines where the little, I don't know, the marbles or the little iron balls are just going down a path that is designated for them and nothing deters them from that. And what, yeah, we, and what we know about their interests uh, and what you highlight in your essay is that the only ethical issue that people in this data-obsessed environment bring up is ownership, but they don't really bring up any other aspect, which is basically all of the aspects of, <laughs> um, of what this data-driven environment does to people or what this data-driven thinking does to people. When we talk about not having to suffer again, we have huge problems of quantifying the suffering of people and what we think about suffering and who is entitled to relief of of being relieved from pain or or what kind of solution to pain is working for certain people you know the the one example that always pops up in my mind because that was my obsession for quite a while is what we think about pain during birth and mm. and who should decide what should be endured and what shouldn't be suffered through And, you know, attempts to relieve pain oftentimes lead to huge complications and troubles. It doesn't mean that everything is bad that is being done around birth medically. I'm just saying that it's it's very problematic. So beyond these flowcharts, do you have a place where you designate, you put down the pole and say, this is where ethics start. And this is when philosophers sit in the boardroom and tell you how far you can go with your game. Or how would you... Where do you see an intervention point for ethics in this discourse? Well, for me, uh, an important intervention point, to, to name it like that, is the body. So obviously, you know, I've mentioned Simone de Beauvoir now a couple of times. I take a bit of a feminist approach also in my book. And I think what Thank is... God. <laughs> Yeah, well, we need that in this. It's a very masculine world, you know, and uh, I also say somewhere like big data, it's, it's pure machismo, if you ask me. But anyway, so what is interesting also of this, this idea of, of the completely predictable and datafied uh, world that we are creating is that it's also a world without bodies. And for me, just the fact that we humans have a body which is something that you can also turn into. So you can sit still and you can also be quiet and still a lot is going on when you are sitting still and being quiet. It, it's, it's like an immediate kind of counterpoint to everything that this dataism, you know, is discourse is, is presenting to us. So the idea of the body, which, uh, which is not something, uh, some extra luggage that, that we're dying to get rid of, like transhumanist people kind of make it out to be, but that it is a source of knowledge and a source of, you know, um, autonomy also, I guess, a source of suffering, of experience, of uh, resistance even. Growth, uh, that I guess. Growth, yeah, and decline, you know, yes. just let's be honest. <laughs> but also unpredictability. So uh, there's a lot going on in the body that we can't predict and that we can't datafy. So for me, this is a very also democratic kind of uh, uh, point of, of resistance. So we all have this thing and we can do something with it. And it also relates to this 
objectness. So it's a thing um, which resists uh, transparency through and through. Um, so that's where where it becomes uh, very f philosophical again, I guess. You know, the object-oriented approach uh, of things, which says, you know, things in themselves resist pure transparency or pure knowledge or endless objectivity. And I think that's a very good kind of reminder of, um, you know, what what is out there and how we can uh, retain, you know, some kind of autonomy, even if that's also an old fashioned word by now. But, you know, uh, why should we throw it out? Okay, let's be hipsters about this old-fashioned notion. But since you are a member of our board of editors, and I'm turning to you for advice on a lot of issues, let me ask you for a little bit of putting this whole thing into practice in a particular problem that in cultural journalism is all over the place. And this is readability. This is a huge debate issue that we all come up our own takes for or solutions for. There's no good solution to the all over demand of readability, which is basically we have to optimize our publishing, online publishing we're talking about, uh, to the demands of search engines. That's one thing because, mm. you know, it's, it's, a, it's a quite technical thing and you, you even don't have to display your take on this. But how do we approach the demand that our texts be more readable uh, to, say, a lay audience or more readable for someone who is not acquainted with the topic or just mm -hmm. easier to consume? How do you approach this? Well, for me, readability is, uh, is something that is very important. Uh, but then I'm not talking about readability for uh, machines or algorithms, but uh, my book came out with a general publisher, a literary publisher in the Netherlands, and uh, it's for a reason. So I, I go through great pains, I can tell you, to uh, make my text a, a pleasant to read, at least that's what I hope. I but can assure, that's why we're talking. I, I only <laughs> wanted to interview you because it's a great, great read. It was great reading it while editing it and publishing it. But I think when it comes to readability, we've suffered, this is kind of something that I say a lot, you know, but we've suffered in online publishing for maybe two decades under this idea that reading online should come in bullet points. So that was, it, it, you know, there are documents that are saying this, which are from like the turn of the century. Like if you write online, it has to be short, it has to be in bullet points and you have to be very clear. You have to maybe write like an algorithm, you know, so you have to be fully transparent, et cetera, et cetera. All these things that are, you know, bullshit, if you if you ask me. So that's kind of one side of readability. And then, of course, there is the unreadable which is like academic philosophy. And I don't really mean to, you know, insult anyone, but we know kind of like the unreadable texts, which are so academic that no layperson can ever, you know, get through it or even fellow academics can't. Well, but my, there is something in between. My personal approach to that is that it's the editor's fault. 
<laughs> of course, I like to blame my own cast wherever I am. <laughs> yeah, but, but but that's no, basically the the whole regime of of academic publishing hasn't really prevented these texts or the production of knowledge to be very exclusive, no. has it? Yeah, but the goal of academic publishing also isn't to be read widely; it's to publish, you know. So it's it's okay, but it's just that there is something in between which is more literary writing. So I would say literary nonfiction, as as it's called, at least here in the Netherlands, it's a very important genre where you really take the effort, you know, to uh, to write something in a way that is not just conveying information in a transparent way, uh, which is not, you know, uh, possible in, in 100% uh, transparency, but that also makes itself kind of clear or delivers an experience through form. So it's not just about the message or the content, but you have to do something with the form. And for me, it's been very important to um, to make my, you know, uh, textual form supportive of what I was trying to say. So if I'm trying to say that there is no, no such thing as endless objectivity and, you know, raw data and pure truth and all these things that we talked about, then you can't choose a form to write in that kind of pretends that that it that that would be possible so that's why it's it's uh, definitely essayistic and it's a search and it's um I, I state in my introduction you know this this book is very hard to summarize but that's also kind of the point so um if if i could have made like a 10 point manifesto i would have made the 10 point manifesto but the whole point of of my what I'm trying to say is that you you have to kind of experience the multiplicity of of the world out there and and the non-transparency and how yeah, so. yeah and and also I guess that this is a multifold process there is not going to be one clear obvious solution to to a problem but the meanderings mm-hmm. of a discourse belong in there My personal take would be for that, just a little bit addition, is that personability of a text is not only about, you know, posting selfies in what you write and always being about a certain celebrity that you saw before. No, on the the contrary, the text should be personable through something that you sense in style and in the use of language that you don't even necessarily have to be able to fully identify but it has a huge impact on on us as readers. Uh, and this is part of the cognitive process. This is part of learning and understanding the argument in the first place. Yes, and I think it's also, you know, if you're talking about stuff like algorithmic bias or uh, the perspective uh, that a computer also has, or even that numbers have or digitality has, then you shouldn't pretend to to know everything yourself. So for me, it's important to show where I'm coming from or, you know, name sources or name the holes in the arguments or uh, show, you know, 
what I don't know. So I, I, I always advocate, you know, talking about what you don't know in a way that, that also doesn't pretend to know it. And that is something that I think is very important. And my book is definitely not like a definite book on dataism. It, it is a book on dataism and ethics that also really wants to have siblings, just so to to speak. So for me, something that I come come back to many times in the book is this notion of translation. So data uh, are often presented as a tra translation of the world into a universal code. So there's only one translation possible. And once you have it, you're done. While translation, of course, is a very important topic when you uh, look at literature or publishing or, you know, cultural uh, publishing. And there it's, you know, common knowledge almost that translation is never definitive. So if you translate a poem, you can make a hundred translations and then you can have a hundred translators making even more translations and you will never be done. You will always be able to make another translation. And that is not something that is wrong or sad or negative it's precisely the beauty of it and that what we want to you know celebrate and what in enriches us is this fact that you're never done with it so that is for me um, a completely different way of of looking at the world and knowledge and how you could gain more knowledge uh, by you know, discussing and comparing and um, ec making explicit your your own biases and, and perspectives, not because it's it's a negative thing or that's why I don't know about this word fallible. So because it sounds a bit negative and I think there's just so many beautiful things to be found in not knowing everything. Yeah, I understand there are a bunch of potential translations for the word fallible. <laughs> uh, into each language, but the one we use in Hungarian actually has a very positive and lovely connotation. So Eshendő represents something that is relatable, that's vulnerable, and that's uh, that's open for you to connect with. So maybe that's that's yes. why I have a very different notion because I'm translating from another understanding into yeah. the English version. Also, just just to give an example, but you also argue that avoiding the language of data or refusing pan-computationalism as a, the philosopher Luciano Floridi describes it doesn't mean that we can just go back to an existing old language as is. You say that would be an attempt that's also doomed to fail because it was appropriated by scholars and majorly men and the West. And instead, you suggest we should be exploring other languages, which, though embedded in tradition, and this is a quote, the humanities or other cultural conventions provide means of description appropriate to this particular historical period. Possibilities for thinking about ourselves in the here and now, stories that specifically challenge the monopoly of the profile language. So correct me if I'm understanding this wrongly, but you suggest further developing or not, not even developing, but basically reappropriating our languages and working on 
this front instead of simplifying it, right? Yes, definitely. And I think it's like uh, in the discussion about post-truth politics and, you know, so some people have been saying we, we have to go back to this time when, when everyone agreed on, on at least the facts or some truth and enlightenment. Yeah, I muted myself right now because I'm groaning so loud. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god yes. yeah but it, it, i mean i don't want to go back to a time like that because it was very exclusive and uh, uh what kind of truth was that it, it was that i don't believe that that was the truth and that everyone uh you know complied to it because many people weren't even allowed to speak up or even go to university or something so and some people could trick that that time-honored uh, legacy media system with pieces of news about penguins falling on their backs when a helicopter flies above or other types of ridiculous <laughs> media hacks, which were, which was all the rage throughout the 2000s, basically a, a huge load of all sorts of punks, uh, scientific and non-scientific, were actively trying to prove that this legacy media system is very easy to trick through following a certain regime of the looks, just the looks mm -hmm. of authoritativeness. So that's not something we want to return. What do we want to return to, or what do we turn to instead? You say at some point in the essay in your zine that what we need is a politics of de-automation, but you're not a Luddite. So this is for, you know, <laughs> for, for the layperson to look at you and imagine what does a politics of de-automation mean for someone who publishes a book in a fully online event and is mainly focused on on the developments in in recent publishing and it accepts and understands the potential in technology what does de-automation mean for you or what are you proposing well i think de-automation is mostly important when it comes to resisting this inevitability that is being pushed on us. So this idea that you have to participate always, 24-7, that you cannot say no, this is just going to happen, deal with it, don't resist because it's futile. Resistance is futile. And I think we have to kind of, uh, uh, or I would very much like for people to see that they can take up a more autonomous stance towards technology and even just their technology that they use every day you know for sure i'm not a luddite i love the internet and i love my smartphone and i'd rather save them than discard them but uh, i really try to deal with them on my own terms and of course my terms are very limited by just the world and and the situation that we're in but even within this situation, to, to um, put it a bit philosophically, there is some wriggle space where you can think about, you know, what do I want to do with this? And where you can just say no to, for example, the constant demand for communication or the constant demand for liking and answering, responding within the minute, etc., etc. Or one of my favorite examples is all the smart appliances that are kind of being forced upon us, you know, to put them in our homes and in everything that we use and buy and own. 
you don't have to do it. There are ways where you can just say, no, I don't want my use of electricity or whatever being automatically collected and crunched. And I think it's very important that, that we kind of see ethics also as something uh, that applies to us as citizens and users of the technology and not just something that the companies or, or governments have to deal with. So we all have an ethical stance or we can all have this reflection on what we think and what we want to do. And yeah, sure, it's hard and, and it takes some time and effort, but um, it also, it's what what you want to do in, in, in life and in, in, in the world. And those big players out there, they probably want us not to feel like we have this opportunity or this possibility to have a more independent relationship with our technology because once you take up your your own stance towards it then you disrupt this smooth frictionless working of the thing so um, and this whole smooth perspective is just not prepared for anything extraordinary no it, we're of course at least in in the use of the term extraordinary we're returning to this pandemic but i think it has a, a huge implication right now that we are not going to discuss in extreme detail but i think it's worth mentioning that there's a sort of double effect of automation right now it's offering to be the ultimate solution to the corona crisis which is obviously not there's a lot of factors there but also access to the devices that this whole approach should rely on is very different in certain certain societies and in certain uh, strata of societies and then there's also how these operation or or these appliances can actually understand us which they most often don't i have fun with this every day when the kids at home are trying to demand something from from the smart assistant which is basically a speaker with with speech recognition but of course our children don't speak the appropriate english yet to make themselves understood and it's just hilarious how uh, speech recognition is grappling with what's something as obscure as another language which in this case it's hungarian i know it's hard for most to understand but this is just one example but i think what only occurred to me during this lockdown is um or occurred to me much stronger than it has before and i think it has to do with these with the de-automation of decision making what you are advocating right mm -hmm. is that the perspective of what this smooth design is offering us is going to get lost pretty soon simply because you and I both belong to generations who came up without these technologies, right? Mm -hmm. And right now, I do remember my father telling me about big agricultural machinery or the washing machine, how those were not available even... I mean, the washing machine, in that sense, wasn't available in my parents' household when I was born. And that's a very strong perspective from which you appreciate something and from which you take control of something. And I think the washing machine is also extremely important from the female point of view, mm -hmm. let's be honest. But now it's basically everything around us that I have to explain to these children who have a hard time because they don't know how to be bored and how to occupy themselves because they mm -hmm. barely ever encountered this. 
and like the endless, the seemingly endless availability of music or whatever kind of entertainment content, which isn't at all endless. It's, it's obviously a pretense. This is something that these kids don't really have a perspective of. So they either have to be moved out of this regime to be able to appreciate what's available for them and to be able to appreciate what's not available in the system. And probably if we resisted at least somewhat this technology taking over our lives, it would allow us, our children, to be a little bit more prepared for situations when they are not being offered what they're looking for. Well, and also to reflect on what their personal outlook might be. I mean, that's again, you know, this kind of humanistic view on, on what it means to be a human and what it means to be alive. But I mean, isn't it one of the nice things that we can all reflect on, on who we are and what we think and what we might want and not have everything served to us on, on a silver plate. I think that's That also has to do with being in control of your own life, right? Which is mm -hmm. basically the loss of control is the, the main feature or the primary feature of a traumatic event. This is how trauma is identified in most cases, that when you lose control of your own life, that's going to impact you very differently than anything else. Even, even the same mm -hmm. event with the same result, and I've mentioned births already, there's a huge literature on this, can leave a very different psychological and personal impact on you simply because you did feel in control or you knew that you lost control entirely. So that also seems like a huge minefield for very, well, traumatic. What, what, what synonym can I find for that? Horrifying events. Just, yeah, just suffering thought, through something instead of living it. But even just pragmatically speaking, you know, sometimes it can feel very convenient to hand over control to an outside body of you know, a government or, or a company or an algorithm, for that matter. So you hand over control so you don't have to feel insecure or worry about it yourself. But it's just very important to see that the intent of these companies or these governmental bodies is not what you would want or not for uh, your in benefit. your best interest. So you hand over control thinking that, that it, it's for the best, but the best of them is something different from the best of yourself, I think. And that is something that we don't realize all the time. So what are the interests that are being served? It's, um, it's usually not our best interests. It doesn't even have to be traumatic, but it will be traumatic for someone somewhere. Yeah, I think that's quite a striking tone to finish this chat on, as we agreed <laughs> this this wouldn't be the kind of uh, super formal recapitulation of the text, which is obviously impossible. Thank God it's available in Eurozine and the book is up for everyone to read in Dutch. And the excerpt, an essay from it by the same title, Friction, Ethics in Times of Dataism, is available to read in English. Miriam Rush, thank you so much for talking. Thank you talking uh, this, well, not through with me, but talking about a bunch of problems that, that spring from your essay. 
and I hope to see you, well, probably not very soon, but at some <laughs> point I would love to see you again in person. Likewise. And goodbye. You've been listening to Gogorin, the Eurozine podcast with authors and editors from our network of culture journals from throughout Europe and beyond. You can read Miriam Rashi's article by the title Friction and the Aesthetics of the Smooth at Eurozine.com. Please subscribe to the podcast and rate us on SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you found us, and leave a review if that's something you're into. You can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter, so you will always know what's worth thinking about. I'm Editor-in-Chief Reka Kingopop. I hope you've enjoyed the program. <laughs>